<laughs> Thanks, my name's Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you for having me. I'm do I don't think I'm going to follow either of those briefs, not strictly anyway. Um, right, so I made some notes on Tradition 1. I'm just a member of AA. I don't know why I'm here, but the evidence seems to be that I am here, so I'm going to make the most of it. Think of this as like me being a little creature in a box, and I just talk to myself all day long every day, and for this hour you've lifted the lid of the box. If anything I say is helpful, great, but you can just put the lid back on the box at the end, I'll be fine. So um, my date of sobriety is the 24th of July 1993. Um, I'm very busy in AA at the moment. I'm hosting 13 meetings a week. Um, conference delegate. Uh, I sponsor a bunch of people. Uh, I spend a lot of time on step 11. Um, a tiny bit of background. Um, the steps get me unified with God. The traditions get me unified with everyone else in AA. And the concepts help us get stuff done without having to push each other down the stairs. That's what the steps, the traditions and the concepts are about um, on a good day. Now, um, I'm going to start with tradition one and we'll see how far we get. Um, I'm slow going through stuff, I have to warn you. I'm doing this workshop in Jerusalem every week um, at the moment, and we've been seven weeks, and we've got through two pages of the big book, 84 and 85, that's it. So I really don't know how much we're gonna get through today, but we'll see. Right, so tradition one talks about unity, and this, the point of the steps was to reunify me with other people. Um, I don't know if you've come across the term attack thoughts, but when I first heard the term attack thoughts, I thought, oh my God, I know exactly what that means because my head is full of thoughts which attack me and attack you and attack this and attack that. I wake up in the morning and already I'm on the attack. I heard something yesterday, it's percolated overnight and boom, attack. And you see then, <laughs> the amazing thing is I will spend all day mentally attacking people and then complain that I feel isolated, separate and alone. And that's somehow everybody else's fault uh, because they're not treating me right. So the steps, the point of the steps, one of them, there's a major element when I do step four and take other people through step four is the stuff on page 66 and 67 where I look at my resentments from an entirely different angle What's that angle? Their angle. What does life look like from them? What do I look like from their point of view? How does my behaviour look like to them? And then, ah, oh, I get it. I get why they're acting the way they do, because they're like me. And that withdrawal of the judgement, which diffuses resentment, that withdrawal of the judgement, it needed some understanding and it needed a lot of prayer reconnected me. Um, to put it simply, I had to forgive everyone for everything. And then in step nine, um, step nine is, is, is a, a, my experience, a, a grim and embarrassing process. Get it done quickly and then it's over. Um, I didn't re-establish amazing relationships with like all the people I ever harmed. Most of them were like, thanks for the apology. We still think you're an asshole, but you know, thanks for the apology. And I was at peace. It was fine. I found new people to form relationships with. Um, a few people, like my family, you know, everything worked out there. But I got it done. I wouldn't give you tuppence for how I did it, but I got it done. I went to the people. I said, this is what I did wrong. I was a schmuck. I shouldn't have done it. What can I do to make this right? And most people were like, yeah, you were a schmuck. Um, if you could just keep your distance, that would be just fine. Um, but lots of other things have come out of it over time. But what happened there, my sense of separation from other people left me because there was literally nothing more I could do to right the wrongs that I had committed. 
and I, I try and stay in a position where I'm not consciously aware of an unfulfilled obligation, an unpaid debt, or an unmade amend. If I owe amends, I make it now. Just, just get it done with my other half. I said, do you do guilt? Do you ever feel guilty? He said, well, there's no need, because if I do something wrong, I admit it promptly, and then I just sort it out. So there's no, there's no gap for guilt to get in there. So the central unity that I get with other people comes through that part of step four, where I forgive everyone, that part of step five, when I yield up to another person everything I've ever done, and they're fine, you know, they're always fine. Occasionally you see them having to stifle either a yawn or a look of complete horror, but usually they're pretty good at both. And then in step nine, I reconnect to other people in step in in sacrificing my ego on the altar of service in AA, I get reconnected to other people. And so there's a fundamental link between tradition one and the steps. Uh, my personal welfare depends on my unity with you in AA. Uh, my mind goes to pretty strange places and it takes daily conversations with other people in AA um, to yank me back to the middle. Um, um, the, 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 there's a, uh, a, a Polish rabbi from the, I think, 18th or 19th century called Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk, uh, and he wrote 48 rules of life. And the first one is something like this. A horse walks down the middle of the road. A man walks either on the far left or on the far right. And I'm like that. I, my natural impulse is to stick the middle finger up at the world and sit there in my corner thinking about everything. And um, I mean, just at my, I mean, this is just between you and me. <laughs> but yesterday there was a little incidento at my home group and I had to, um, I had to be a bit school mommy. And my you know, it took like half an hour of processing with my best friend after the meeting on the phone to pull me back from some unconscionable action. I need to be super connected to others. That's after 27 years. Can you imagine what I was like when I was new? Anyway, um, so I need to be super connected to other people. Otherwise, I veer to the left hand side of the road or the right hand side of the road. I'm either completely distanced from the world or I've got my fingers in every pot, one or the other. Um, but also my personal welfare, welfare depends on the common welfare. Uh, one, I, I mean, it's true with living in an in interconnected world, it's true living in an interconnected AA. If I don't have a strong home group, there's nothing to tether me. So my best interests lie in making sure that my home group is the strongest imaginable home group, the one that's most effective, and efficient in carrying the message to who actually needs to hear it today. Um, uh, that's the per when I'm fulfilling my purpose, which is tradition five, to carry this message to another alcoholic. There are purposes outside AA as well. I'll come to that if we ever get to tradition five. I don't know at some point in the distant future in a galaxy far, far away. Um, but tradition one. When I stick to that primary purpose, I feel whole. So when my group sticks to that primary purpose, I feel whole. And this is where unity, uh, you think unity is going to be all about being cozy and lovey-dovey and never saying boo to a goose, and it's absolutely not. It's one and five, to me, in my home group are immensely important in holding the whole thing together. If we don't have a common purpose, what is the rallying point about which we have unity? We have no rallying point. And um, one of the, the, the situation that arose yesterday was to do with, um, uh, obviously we're on Zoom and the meeting has swelled to way above its normal level. And it's a very, very focused big book step study group. And if we don't pick on group members to share 
in priority over other people, there's a huge risk that our purpose won't be achieved because the sharing is going to come from people who are not on board with what the ethos of the group is because they weren't there in the group consciences. They weren't there when the group was founded. So my my personal welfare depends on group uh, uh, group unity. The group unity depends on the primary purpose being achieved. And that's when I had to become school mom and just poke the GSR and say, um, BTW, could we make sure that we are actually prioritizing group members in sharing because the, the meeting was going off to one side. And then another week is lost. It's another week before we have the chance to carry the message again. If we lose that hour, the rest of the week is gone. So sometimes for the purposes of unity, I have to stick my head above the parapet and risk being disliked or getting my reputation tarnished or putting people's backs up or upsetting people. It's a paradox that I, I don't think we have group unity because we're all like nice. It's not about being nice. It's about doing the right thing. And that has a strength. People see that strength and can put up with the difficult interpersonal interactions because they see the strength of the primary purpose coming through um and with regard to this great whole uh, the common welfare both outside aa and inside aa uh, i struck a deal with god in step three that nothing was going to be my business except staying close to god and performing his work well and i've got to get the balance right between those two and the balance means this that uh first thing in the morning the first thing i say is god please direct my thinking and i spend a lot of time in step 11 in the morning not because i'm good and not because i'm virtuous not because i'm pious but because i know which side of my bread is buttered um this idea in step three on page 63 that i have uh, I stay close to God and perform his work well is mirrored later on in the big book where it talks about having our head in the clouds with God and our feet on earth, which is where the work needs to be done. Being spiritual is not about me sitting on a cushion and finding an emotional state I'm comfortable with by meditating for hours. Now, if that, if I, if after meditating, I feel super comfortable, well, hooray, that's not going to harm anyone. But often when I meditate and say, God, what's your will for me in that meditation? I'm really uncomfortable at the end. Why? I've got a whole load of things to do now. I didn't want to do because I had other plans for the day. So comfort and step 11 don't necessarily go together. It's I don't think for me, it's about being zenned out. It's about being in contact with what my obligations are towards other people in the world. Um, so if I spend too long in step 11 and not actually doing the work, I'm wasting my time. If I don't spend enough time in step 11, I just become this weird slave to obligations where I just move horribly from obligation to obligation, wondering when this is ever going to let up. I've got to have a balance between the two. I've got to have my head in the clouds. Where does this come in with tradition one? Common welfare comes first. So my personal welfare, my well-being comes from me trying to contribute maximally to the world around me within AA, with my sponsees, in my home group in AA, in my community, in my society. And when I do a step 12 review, I'm always asking myself, what am I giving to society? What am I giving to my community? What am I giving to my home group at every single conceivable level of service? And it's constantly being rebalanced between inside AA and outside AA. Um, I want to talk about, about uh, tradition one um, a little bit in the group context before going on to AA as a whole and traditions in relationships. Um, so I've mentioned something about tradition five uh, and where that links to the big book, which is where they put the instructions for how to do the steps. No one told me till I was like 15 years sober. I'm like, seriously, you, you could have told me that before. But anyway, 
I finally found the instructions for the steps in the big book. In the UK, FYI, you know, in the 1990s, you didn't really refer to the big book, you just did what your sponsor told you. And so if your sponsor happened to do what was in the book, big book, yay, but if they did something else, you wouldn't know any different. It's just, I do what my sponsor does and he did what his sponsor did. Things changed in AA in this country in the last 15 years, it's got a lot more big booky. Anyway, history lesson over. Page 17 of the big book talks about the bond that we have in AA coming from two things, common suffering and common solution. And it needs both. Um, my drinking story often doesn't match that of other people. I kind of drank more like a drug addict than an alcoholic. There was no social drinking except for the social eye aspect. Um, um, I just don't identify with a lot of the drinking stories because I, I, not because I didn't drink a lot, I drank a hell of a lot, but the patterns were different. I get unity through Tradition 5. I get unity by hearing other people express how they're applying the same solution that I'm trying to apply the other 167 hours of the week when I'm not in my home group. That's when the bonds are formed and the bond carries me through the other seven days of the week. Without that tethering point, I don't know why that home group makes me feel secure or I feel secure in response to going to a home group, but I do. And I think it comes from that notion on page 17. Um, for group unity, um, my experience is that it needs a really strong structure. Um, I had a situation about 15, 16 years ago in a group where it became a kind of, um, how shall I put it? Um, a game that people were playing. How much disruption can I get away with before the group comments? And, and people were like, outdoing each other in their degrees of disruption, going in, going out, going for a cigarette, coming back from the cigarette, going for a cup of tea, going for a second cup of tea, browsing the biscuits, picking up biscuits, putting them back, four or five people going at once. One particular person would start sharing, four people would choose that moment every single week to leave for the cigarette. And it was all to do, it's, it's like children. And this is like literally the only time I mention a therapist, but I mentioned to my therapist this situation. She said they're like they are like children. They need they want boundaries. They say they don't want boundaries. They kick against them. But you give them firm boundaries and they can relax because they know where the limits of their power lie and that they feel safe within that. And that's my experience within AA. We start on time. We end on time. We have uh, a stable continuity in the structure. We have clear do's and don'ts, um, consistency, we have officers we trust, and all of this produces a really strong structure. And with that strong structure, um, if I feel safe with a person or a group, I can be candid, I can be open, I can be honest. And on page 29 of the big book, it says, only by disclosing ourselves, uh, and in, in all, I mean, this is a paraphrase, but you know, the full technicolor, you need to get the full picture. I need to be, when I'm in an AA meeting, talking about my personal experience, it needs to be more than just platitudes. It's gotta be my words, my voice, my experience. Yes, we're all saying the same principles, but each one is expressing them in a different way. Um, and there's the line at the end of the preface of the big book where it says, you may pause in hearing one of the 42 stories and say, yes, that happens to me. Yes, I felt like that. Yes, maybe this program will work for me. And it says, it doesn't say pause in reading all 42 of the stories. It says pause in reading one of them because it knows that you're going to find a reason not to identify the first 41. You're off guard, the 42nd, boom, it catches you. And so the reason I like the group, which is my home group, is because people share, um, uh, if, you, if you transcribed each share, afterwards you would know who had shared it because although we're talking about the same topic each person feels comfortable enough to reveal themselves as they really are. I've been to meetings where if you swapped the shares 
if you got people to write down their shares and then swap them, you wouldn't notice because everyone is saying literally the same thing. And I, I've never found that helpful. Some people find that helpful if it does knock, knock yourself out. Um, but the point is, for the group to achieve its primary purpose um, in five, there's got to be a sense of a group. There's got to be this strong structure which enables people to be themselves. And the way my old sponsor, Brian, expressed this was if you have a, a, a paddock in which you're training wild horses, you need to have an incredibly strong paddock. Then you can let the wild horses run around inside the paddock in order to train them. I know nothing about horses, but according to Brian, this is true, so I'm going to believe it. But that really does reflect for me how AA works. A really strong structure enables people to, as the Germans would say, let the pig out. And it's exactly the same in sponsorship. With really strong sponsorship, I find people can, can, can reveal whatever they need to reveal because they know your attitude towards them is not going to change because of what they reveal, so you're safe. So uh, all of these things contrive together to produce a strong home group, and a strong home group is what I need for my personal recovery. Um, other things which really help unity, um, in other words, things which can get in the way of unity, uh, I want to talk about uh, briefly. Um, we don't, at my home group, require any conformity. So unity doesn't mean uniformity in step one. Uh, there are meetings where everyone dresses the same. There are meetings where the men have to wear trousers and the women have to wear skirts. Again, if that's your home group and it's working for you, great. It's just not my, my thing, that. Um, I like everyone to be able to come to my home group, whatever they are, whatever they've been doing that day, whatever expresses who they are so they can bring their whole selves to the meeting and not feel they have to please um, other people. Um, and although my home groups are strong, uh, we don't impose um, conformity in terms of sharing. So historically, over the last 10, 12 years, when I've been in big book groups as my home group, you're going to get some people who are facing particular personal challenges right now and that that expresses itself in sharing which doesn't necessarily make sense which isn't necessarily on the topic which doesn't necessarily reflect great mental health right now and we let people share anyway now this appears to contradict what i've said before but you never know who needs to hear the message. You never know. Uh, you never know who um, uh, is going to finally hear the message after many years. And allowing people to share, even if it, it's in a non-conforming way, allows them to feel part of the group. If people feel part of the group, here's the thing: people start to want to imitate the people who, you know, the, the people around them. We've never needed to police the sharing. Uh, we lead by example. We find that if seven or eight people are sharing uh, very clearly on the topic, other people start to share on the topic as well. We don't need to tell people to do that. We just decide to do that and it happens. Um, I'm a great fan of no crosstalk in meetings. and. In my experience, it's just as divisive to have positive crosstalk as negative crosstalk. If I pick out one person's share that I really liked, I'm simultaneously insulting all of the shares that I don't pick out. Um, I often, if there's a speaker, I often know the speaker, but I won't use the opportunity of sharing back to the speaker to to like convey all sorts of personal stuff and I've known you all these years and you've helped me in this way and you've helped me in that way. It's practicing tradition 12, like we're all equal. There are no like special channels, there are no special links. We're all equally part of the group. Every time I'm forming a special relationship with someone else in the group, whether it's positive or negative, this is in the group setting. This is when we're in the meeting. 
I'm excluding everyone else from that little bond. So I just, while I, I, I learned this in Al-Anon actually, uh, is to just stick to my own experience, tell my own story, if it helps other people, fine, if it doesn't, fine, and then just leave other people to do what they want to do. Um, I don't need to cross-reference everything the whole time. Um, other things which promote unity in the group, um, how to handle bad behaviour. I'm going to cover this only very briefly. There's lots of stuff in the AA manuals and pamphlets and blah, blah, blah in the UK. Um, but we take it very seriously. Very simply, we deal with it. If there is harassment, if there is predatory behaviour, uh, if there is disruption, we don't stand for it. We don't stand for the behaviour, but we look after the person and we try to do it in a way which doesn't, hum which avoids humiliating the person wherever possible, because that does not help either. It merely reinforces the guilt and the behaviour is a response to guilt. So we try and do it in a way which respects the individual who's behaving badly whilst protecting the group. Um, in order to have unity in my group, um, uh, a week is a long time. I don't know what your experience of this situation is, but a week in between my home group meetings in the real world is pretty quick. A week in between my home group meetings in the virtual world is like a month or more in the real world. And so it's been really important to me to maintain daily relationships with half a dozen other people in my home group and then when we get to the group meeting there is a unity which has been carrying us through uh, the whole time um, another thing which is very important for group unity is i, I i've seen problems in it was my old home group i'm not going to say which it was just to protect the innocent and protect the guilty um, Sometimes groups which are very effective can get over ambitious and try to bite off more than they can chew and start too many projects at once and try to extend into too many areas outside the scope of the group. Um, my experience with trying new projects, trying new ideas is they're almost invariably divisive. And so to try one thing at a time change only very slowly, make only the changes which are necessary and just stick to uh, stick to the primary purpose. I'll give an example. Um, I do think that going for fellowship after a meeting is important to go for dinner, to go for coffee, to go for something so that people don't have to waltz out into the cold, dark night on their own, especially if they're new, especially if it's Friday night or Saturday night. So that's good. But you try bringing the question of where to go for fellowship into the group conscience, the group will split down the middle or split three ways or split four ways. There are so many arguments in group consciences and business meetings that can't be avoided. Um, I want to avoid those conflicts that don't need to be brought into the group conscience. So my home groups, although we announce where we go for fellowship afterwards, we announce it not as a group decision. It's some of our members go to this cafe. Some of our members go to this restaurant. Uh, it avoid all, the, all, all sorts of arguments get avoided that way. So it's consensus by uh, voting with one's feet rather than having to bash things out in a group conscience. Um, I've, I've recently come across a, 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 a friend of mine uh, is in a, a, a large group in a, I won't say what country it is or what fellowship, but they've got like 60 or 70 people in the group. And, you know, people, everyone's smart and engaged, which is great. But the downside is that everyone has 47 ideas for how to improve the group. And they have literally, a, they have like a group conscience once a month, not twice a year, not once a year, once a month, which lasts two hours. They are six months behind in terms of processing the ideas for the group. And the whole thing is ground to a halt and everyone's arguing. And these are not bad people. These are people with a strong program. And I think this is the 
this is also an aspect of Tradition 9 not being over-organised. I get uncomfortable when groups get too big, get too organised, where the script goes on for like for, 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 for forever and you, it's like 10 minutes before you get into the content. Dr. Bob talked about groups losing some of their effectiveness when they go beyond 35 people or so. And I think there's a great deal to be said for the simplicity. Lots of meetings in London are still very, very simple. Lots of groups are very, very simple. You come along, someone speaks for half an hour, someone's made the tea, you put the chairs out, people share one by one, you go home afterwards. And some of those groups, because they're very unambitious, they're not constantly coming up with projects and ideas and schemes and plans. They just do a simple thing. Super unified, very few arguments. It's interesting. So sometimes trying to be maximally effective ends up impairing group unity. And there has to, I think there has to be a balance there. Um, uh, what else? Um, Another thing which is which promotes group unity in my experience <clears throat> is to make a sharp distinction, sharp and clear distinction between business meetings and group conscience meetings. So the concepts are useful on this. The concepts draw a distinction between major questions of policy and finance, which are resolved infrequently once a year at conference. And then all of the operational decisions, which are constantly being made by the, the general service board, the corporations, the subcommittees, those are simply a matter of implementing the major decisions of policy and finance. And operational decisions tend to be relatively uncontentious. Major decisions of policy and finance uh, tend to be very contentious. So we ring fence at my home group, we ring fence the group conscience questions, the major questions of policy and finance to twice a year, one hour, time separately set aside, relaxed situation, no voting allowed. All we can do is make proposals, we vote one month later to make it as relaxed as possible and not have people constantly tense thinking what's going to change in my home group next you know you know those groups where you go on holiday and you come back and everything is different and no one told you that just can't happen in my home groups changes very slow the business meetings are held once a month they're held very frequently but we just deal with minor trivial crap with no major decisions are made at them uh, and this this promotes a huge amount of harmony it is not being under constant threat of policy decisions being thrust upon the group by ad hoc group consciences. Questions come through. How is safety operationalized in these times? We my home group, we can't we've we, we've put in place all the standard Zoom measures. Um, I use I I'm, said I host twice a day. Um, almost every day of the week, uh, uh, a big book meeting, but I host it on GoToMeeting, which has, which is a different platform. It's like Zoom, but it can't be bombed because it's no fun. There's like no, nothing a bomber can do on GoToMeeting, which is remotely entertaining. So they don't seem to try. Um, regarding what people do in between meetings, we, we don't know. We have no agency over that. In real life it's much easier to work out what's going on you see people interacting you see creepy men running around after girls at meeting you can you can spot it it's much harder in this situation but my home group just standard measures we don't, we're not doing anything not doing anything uh special there uh, another question um how often do you recommend changing service positions in your home group my uh, Friday home group. We had the GSR switches every two years, the treasurer switches every two years, uh, public information, one, I think that's a one-year commitment. Everything else is six months um, so that it mixes up the whole time and everyone gets used to doing all of the jobs. How do you currently make sure newly sober alcoholics are included in your home group? How do you target them? Target them. Um, 
what we're doing before the meeting, four or five people are primed to look out for names popping up in the participants list which are not known to the group and so they're approached by several people say hey we don't recognize the name uh not seen you before are you new to aa are you new to this group and so that they're, they're befriended um we offer time at the end for people to hang around we're going to be using breakout rooms from next week i'm given to understand so that we can go off and chat to people in small groups uh, another thing that my daily group is doing, it's not, a, it's not an AA group, it's a big book group. Most of the people are AA, but there are people who are OA and SA and Al-Anon and S-Anon and all sorts of things. Um, there we have the numbers uh, included in our name, so we change the name to include the telephone number. We have, we use Discord, which is... Um, it's actually a gaming communication server, but it's super useful discord for communications in between. So we encourage in that group, in that meeting, people to log on to there and people chat, chat all through the week. What's interesting in my daily group, we've had six or seven newcomers um, who uh, have come along in the last few weeks. Now, every single one is sponsored by someone who goes to that meeting. And it's because of people actively reaching out and forming relationships. So whatever we're doing seems to be looking after the newcomers there. Um, so I want to look at unity at the level of AA as a whole. And this is going to be controversial, probably. So um, I don't want to upset anyone, but it, it might happen. So just brace yourselves. Right. So. I want to be able to go anywhere in AA and feel comfortable and just be anywhere as an AA member, not special, not different, uh, not from a particular part of AA. Yeah, my I, I have a home group, fine. But it's my home group is not my identity. If my home group becomes my identity, I start to protect it. It becomes us and them. And what I aim to do Although it's, although we disagree on stuff in AA, you know, I don't know why we disagree on stuff in AA, but the data suggest we disagree on stuff in AA, like across countries, between countries, within cities. There is disagreement about how to work the program, about whether to work the program, about all sorts of things. But sometimes that crosses the line and tips over into antagonism and division and i no longer i used to take part a lot in online facebook groups about the big book and about aa and my i i've stopped because of the amount of antagonism and division between different camps and different approaches with people constantly trying to prove that their way of doing it is right and everyone everyone else's way is wrong and people saying stuff they wouldn't say to people's faces but saying it online so I'm, I try, and I'm a lot better than I used to be, at not unnecessarily fostering antagonism and division and boundary lines between different approaches in AA. And part of that is, uh, I think the Brits are pretty good at this. I don't know if there are any Americans here. If there are, perhaps we can boot them off so I can be candid. But in America, my I've, I've been to lots of wonderful conferences in America, but they often have branding. So there's primary purpose group, there's back to basics, there's fellowship of the spirit, there's prime time, there's big book step study. And now the branding is kind of great in one way, because you go to a fellowship of the spirit conference, you know what you're going to get. You go to a big book step study in Massachusetts or New Hampshire, you know what you're going to get. But I've been to meetings in New Hampshire. I been I went to, into a big book meeting, and because Big Book Step Study has got its own particular format, uh, where you're not allowed to share unless you've been sponsored by someone who's in Big Book Step Study, and they've got some other rules as well. Um, we went into this big book meeting, and we said, "Um, can we ask a question?" They said yes, and we said, "Is this?" big book step study because it was a big book meeting we needed to check 
I said, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. And there's like this huge division in New Hampshire between Big Book Step Study and the other big book meetings. Each one is in a different camp. Um, and so that the branding and this like franchising of systems or ways of going through the big book, there, there are obviously good arguments for it. But boy, have I seen it create a lot of division. And I've seen it in the UK as well. There's a, there's a group which will remain nameless in an unnamed city where uh, they've taken um, one of the Texan approaches. And the group is very strong. The group is very successful. Most of the people um, uh, in the group end up in the general service structure. So lots of the intergroup in the region is populated by people from that group. But they are loathed by the people in that city generally. And the, the antagonism, and it, I believe, it's just an opinion, I believe it comes from the branding. Um, I, when I sponsor people, I actively encourage them to go to a whole bunch of different meetings so that it doesn't become us and them. So the people at my home group, even though we're doing things in our home group, like pretty differently to lots of other groups, we all go everywhere. We all we blend in in all sorts of different environments, in all sorts of different groups. Now, you're not going to please any everyone. Um, any group which is very, very strong in terms of content is probably going to make some enemies at some point along the road. So you can never please everyone. But my home groups have generally been that they're not unpopular the way I've seen very strong groups popular bef unpopular before. And it's because we don't separate ourselves off. We don't say to our sponsees, you know, these are the groups you have to go to. You're not allowed to go to any others because they're no, we want people to be mixed in with AA as a whole. Uh, and I feel comfortable wherever I go in AA uh, because I need the whole fellowship. I don't just need my home group. I need the whole fellowship. Uh, and as part of that, it's it's I see it as my job and I encourage my sponsees to do this. Um, to. Uh, contribute maximally to the service structure, um, both as an individual and as a group. So providing people for intergroup and for region and for the conference process. Couple more questions. How do you deal with a big book BBS, big book step home group that has very few people working a program, but lots of egos trying to change things in the group conscience for the sake of it? Okay, I'll tell you how we, <laughs> Um, I'll tell you how we dealt with that at my previous home group. So we have group conscience just twice a year. If people have loads of ideas, we work out before the group conscience happens what the most popular ideas to discuss are. Pick three, just discuss those. So there's like a whittling process before you get to the group conscience. So you don't have to spend your whole time discussing every idea that everybody has had. It's been heard, but it gets whittled before you have the discussion. And that stops too much being changed at once. What are your thoughts on online groups like WhatsApp for a home group? I've not got experience of a WhatsApp group um, um, as a <coughs> home group. Um, I've been toying with um, not keeping my terrestrial home group, but I've decided against it uh, because when the lockdown stops, I'm going to need to see people in person. The virtual stuff for me is like 90% there, but there is a 10% which is missing. Um, I'm going to say something else really controversial. Um, when I'm in an ordinary meeting, a terrestrial meeting, as they call them, Earth meeting. I can sit there and people can be sharing stuff for an hour I don't much care for, but I'm fine, I'm comfortable, I'm with my friends, I'm kind of drowsy, I like the sound of the voices, I like the fact the bodies are in the room, you know, people are good-willed, everyone's doing their best. Yeah, I'm kind of not engaging because I just, my mind just won't engage, but I'm, I'm loving it, I'm just dissolved into the group. 
you have the same sharing in a Zoom meeting, I find it so hard to stay focused unless I'm really into the sharing. You're probably experiencing that right now. Um, but this is the thing. There's some communication that happens in person that doesn't happen online. So I'm, whether I want to or not, uh, I'm going to stick with my terrestrial home group. I'm, yeah, I'm going to be doing a lot more online. So I sponsor people in like, like whacked out places. And this online stuff is enabling us to connect to remote parts of Norway and, you know, remote parts of Israel and different places. So I'm going to keep the online stuff, but I need to be physically present as well. Does whittling away ideas before beforehand reduce the opportunity for minority voices to be heard? So minority opinion has got, well, there are several aspects to minority opinion. We need a whole like hour on, on concept uh, five. Um, but basically, anyone can pose an idea, but it is the group conscience to work out what we want to discuss. Um, there are three measures of success of any endeavour. Uh, two are in the introduction to the concepts. The third one is in the big book. The two in the introduction to the concepts by Bill Wilson are, firstly, effectiveness and secondly, efficiency. And they've got to be balanced. If something is super effective but inefficient, it's not a, it's not going to be effective any longer. And the third one is brotherly and harmonious action. So when you're running a group, having every voice share everything maximally is effective, but it's not necessarily efficient and it doesn't necessarily produce harmony. What produces what what produces a good group in my experience is a balance between those three features, effectiveness, efficiency, and harmony. Next question, how do you deal with rigid policy of chair calling alternate male, female speakers when there is often an, an imbalance in, in, in the sex balance in the meeting? It's considered mandatory in inner city groups here. Um, we don't pick on people in London, so we don't have the same experience. We just let people like who wants to share next is who shares next. Um, also, frankly, round here, you'd be hard pushed half the time to tell whether the person is male or female anyway. Um, you know, the, 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 there's such a lot of fluidity. You, you could really you could really upset people. So um, I remember <laughs> I told you I was going to be controversial and I include myself in that. I once I once complained in an Indian restaurant about the parathas. He said, that's how we bring them, madam. I had long curly hair at the time. Um, um, old Frank, old, there's only one thing that old Frank says that I repeat. I think most are unrepeatable, but the one thing he says is he, he basically shares once a year. And when he shares, he complains. I love him. I so identify. I think when I'm a thousand years old, that's exactly what I'm going to do. People are going to wait for a year. What is he going to complain about this year? He says, you know, I hear people talking about, you know, the men sponsor the women, the, uh, the, the men sponsor the men, the women sponsor the women. How about alcoholics sponsor alcoholics? Um, there's a T-shirt in San Francisco, I'm told. They sell them at conferences. Um, um, the men sponsor the men, the women sponsor the women, and the gays sponsor everyone. Um I think there's some truth, there's some truth in that. What I think is um, helpful is to alternate between people who are sober longer and people who are sober a shorter time, because then you're choosing based on content. So tradition 12 talks about principles, not personalities, which means that we want to make sure that the right content is in the meeting, not necessarily that the right individuals, persons, social groups, ethnic groups, whatever. It's not about the people, it's about the content. And my observation is that when it flips back and forth between people who are newer, people who are sober longer, there's a great interchange that takes place and everyone gets to relate. I think that's a pretty good way of doing things in my observation. I want to talk a little bit about um, traditions and relationships. Um, my there isn't time to do it justice, but I'll give it a go. I've got I've 
gone for 49 minutes, so I'll go to, to just under an hour. So I've been with someone for coming up to 16 years, which is a personal best for both of us. Um, now, the notion of a relationship when I was drinking was was this. Basically, there is something horribly wrong with me. Um, but you are special in some undefinable way. And if I can trick you into thinking I'm special, then I can keep your specialness and that will fix my brokenness. But I'm no, I know that I'm giving you damaged goods, so I feel guilty that I'm like tricking you to be in this relationship so that you can be special to fix me. Because I feel guilty, I start to punish you and then six months later the relationship breaks down. So that's my basic pattern is the relationship is there to fix an inadequacy in me through your specialness and that never worked um the model which does work someone sent us an anniversary card a few years ago of a uh, a boat a, li a little wooden boat and it was seen from the um uh from the prow and in the in the prow of the boat there were two Labradors just looking straight ahead, a darker Labrador and a lighter Labrador. And that's my image of a relationship. It's a vessel which carries us more securely down the river of life. Um, and more safely, there's, you know, if, if the boat is carrying you down life, you don't have to spend your whole time paddling. You can fool around, you can do other stuff. And my experience, the purpose of the relationship is to create this vessel and the vessel is far stronger than either of us would be individually and miraculously it's that thing about when when two or more are gathered in my st john chrysostom when two or more are gathered in my name then i will be there and i think when two people join in a common purpose there is a power that comes in which saves each person from having to paddle the whole time so there's a source of strength which doesn't come from my higher from my other half it comes from the higher power through the fact that we have formed this common bond uh, of the marriage and that means that I can get on with the stuff that I need to get on with in my life. He can get on with the stuff that he needs to get on with in his life. And we get on with some common stuff together. But it's the commitment to the relationship as a, a, a vessel which makes that possible. And that requires a number of things to actually work. Um, firstly, peace comes first. This means that we don't argue. We haven't, uh, I think the closest we got to an argument was around 13, 14 years ago. It was really hairy for about 10 minutes, but we managed to save ourselves. We have a policy decision of we don't argue. If we're upset, we withdraw. We say, I'm just going to be quiet for a bit and then we discuss it later. The full reference is top of 118 of the big book. That's 118. If if a conversation gets heated, it should be the privilege of either to step back and say, I'm sorry I got heated, let's talk about it later. Uh, now, this works only subject to three conditions. The first one is that we have an agreed primary purpose, and the, the agreed primary purpose is to create this vessel. Uh, we have the desire to be in the relationship and to make it work. Sometimes I'm, maybe you've had sponsees where you feel that the purpose of the relationship is not actually to progress in the steps. There's some kind of other psychic purpose the sponsee has, which is getting acted out in the relationship. So this works, this unity, this objective of creating a common vessel works. As I say, if we have three things, a common purpose, uh, a desire to be part of it and a desire to make it work come what may, which means the common welfare comes first, personal welfare comes second. What I want, what I think, blah, 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 irrelevant. It's the common welfare which comes first. The If I look after the common welfare, I discover the personal welfare being looked after. The personal welfare that I need to be concerned about in my relationship is his welfare and he is concerned with mine. Um, 
If we look out for each other, we don't need to look out for ourselves in the same way. And that works pretty well for us. It's an unconditional commitment. This is very un-21st century, but here goes. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, till death do us part. That's the attitude. I, my experience is that when you commit to being in for the duration, you accommodate yourself to what is without complaint because you're going to be here anyway. So let's get used to it, whatever it is. Whatever, and then you discover what you thought was a problem was not a problem. As my friend Nadia would say, it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. And the ability to accommodate to what is comes from the commitment to be here come what may forever. I have that commitment to AA. I have that commitment to my higher power. I have that commitment to my other half. Um, what else? Uh, guiding principle, um, and this is straight from the big book, giving not getting is the guiding principle. Giving of yourself means giving of your time. Um, in Fiddler of the Roof, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, there's a conversation between Tevya and Golda. And Tevya says, do you, they've been married for like 25 years. Tevya says, do you love me? And she says, do I what? And she says, do you love me? And she says, do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why, why talk about love right now? Do I love him? For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. For 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? So it's not about the romance. It's about the devotion. I'm literally giving my life to the other person. And when I do that, I discover myself in love with the other person because I committed to the relationship, not because of trinkets, not because of glitter, not because of glamour, not because of superficial things which used to drag me into relationships. I could sniff people out through lead with whom I could form some kind of weird psychic toxic bond, all coated in this beautiful glitter, shiny, the frame was bejeweled, the picture was of death. This is a different type of romance. It's the romance of common experience. It's the romance of doing someone's laundry for 16 years and being and doing it well for the sake of doing it well. I'm with Tevya and Golda. And you know what? They stayed married. You look at what how romance turns out in 20, 21st century Western civilization. I don't want it. I want a different basis for my relationships. Dr. Paul O. Uh, would say when you give 50% in a relationship to the other person, it looks like 30. And they think they're giving 50. That looks like 30 to you. If you want to reach 100%, you both have to be giving 100%. That's the only way you're going to end up with 100% in the other person's perception as well. Um, what else? Uh, the advice that was given to me, and I try and follow it, yield wherever possible and it's almost always possible so even when you know if it doesn't matter just yield because the other person thinks they're yielding the whole time you think they're just being sensible they think they're yielding and it's the same from my point of view i think i'm being you know rational actually i'm being difficult um Another piece of advice, and this is all to do, this is all under the heading of unity. How do you stay unified? And this is true in any relationship. Forgive everything because they're not going to change. Just thought I'd leave a few seconds of pause after that one. Um, and not to let anything come between us. Uh, like maybe 14 years ago, I was sued. And it was something that inadvertently happened in the house which was his responsibility not mine this happened this happens the most important thing in that situation was to say nothing is going to come between us you are the most important thing i don't care if i've been sued i can get a lawyer i can make it go away it's fine but us nothing is going to get between us and nothing is allowed to get between us in our relationship whatever is going on us always comes first um, and I'm going to finish on this. Um, in To have a unified relationship, it talks on page 70, 77 about um, uh, fitting ourselves to be of maximum service. And 
In the 12 and 12, it talks about when boy meets girl on AA campus, each needs to make sure that there is no emotional or psychological or practical or spiritual handicap, which is going to come up and bite them in the arse later on. And I'd say the three characteristics that I've needed to develop over the years, and I'm not entirely there, but this is what I'm growing towards, are the three qualities that I need to have to have a successful relationship and maintain unity. The first one is emotional maturity, which means emotions that are appropriate, timely and proportionate, having emotional continence, so not leaking everywhere. If I'm going through, if, if I'm having a reaction, go and have my reaction in the appropriate room of the house, not to leak it all over other people. Dealing with negative emotions at the right time, in the right way, and with the right person, and this produces stability. The second thing is competence. Being able to handle practical matters appropriately and promptly, being far-sighted, taking responsibility, knowing when to ask for help, um, and then unselfishness. So basically a life based on service, but I've got to put my own oxygen mask on first. Uh, I'm of no good to anyone else if I'm in a devil of a state myself. So um, that's all I've got on tradition one. Um, thank you for listening and thank you for sticking this out.